0: I wanna begin with asking a question. How do you feel about 40% as a number? Is that a good number or a bad number? 40%. You're probably thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, well let's say in terms of baseball, is 40% a good number or bad number? That means four out of 10 times I go to the plate, Mike is 40% a good batting average, 400. 400, I could go to the Hall of Fame if I continued on. I batted 175 in high school, that's why I didn't continue on. But how about if I got beaned by the baseball four out of 10 times in the head? Not good, that's not a good percentage. How about every time you go to the lotto, four out of 10 of your tickets will be winners? Not a bad deal, right Joe? 900 million, all you'd really need to buy are two tickets, and you'd win instantly. Are you gambling, Joe? Elders? Where are the elders? But how about if I tell you, um, next time you go to uh, fly an airplane, four out of the ten of your landings, you'll crash. Not good. That's not good. Or if the doctor said, Chris... 40% 40% of your organs aren't working. That's not good. So it's all relative. What if I told you four out of 10 people that are eligible to vote for the elections are going to abstain? That means four out of every 10 Americans in this next election aren't going to vote. They're just going to say, no, I don't care. I don't want to be a participant in this. And I mean, when you see this next picture, can you blame them? I mean, honestly, can you? I'm out. I don't want to engage. I'm going to go hide in my camp out, and I'm done. Well, I'm here to say today, remember that word up top, we are to engage. We are to be salt and light, even when it comes to politics. So today our discussion is going to be let's talk religion and politics, what you're never supposed to talk about. To do that, open up to Romans chapter 13. And I got my nice new fatigue cover given to me from the Pila family, but you can't see them because they're all in camel. They match. It's very good that you guys are starting to wear camo. Even Steve Buckner did. Excellent. Go to Romans chapter 13. This is what I would call the definitive scripture on how we are to be as citizens in our country. Not under a theocracy, but under a different form of government. how how you're supposed to view the government, how you're supposed to view the whole issue of why pay taxes. It tells you. Verse 1 of Romans 13, "Let Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll talk about this in a minute. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Let's just open in prayer. Will you bow with me? God, this is a tough, tough, tough discussion. It's full of all kind of different rabbit trails and snares. And my objective, God, today is just to bring clarity so that, God, when we engage this culture, especially this year, an election year, That we will be salt, we will be people that are attractive, and our opinions attractive, but we'll also be light. We will not speak in ignorance, but we'll speak with understanding. Help us to be salt and light in this whole thing of politics. Boy, it's a tough one. We need your help, God, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are going to talk about that thing that your mom tells your dad never to talk about at the Thanksgiving table or at the dinner table. Don't talk about religion and Don, don't bring up politics. I could hear my mom say it to my dad because fire will come out when certain issues are said. I'm going to make a, uh, a few statements. I am not going to give you a definitive answer on who to vote for, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that today. I am going to try to just give you clarity into how to understand this issue, how to properly engage where you're attractive and not an irritation. Because a lot of Christians, quite honestly, are very irritating when it comes to politics and stubborn and blockheaded, and I don't want to be that. I'm going to do three things. First of all, I'm going to talk about why it's hard to talk about politics and religion. Why is it so difficult? Second thing we're going to do is say, what is the purpose? That's really what Romans 13 is about. It defines the role of government. Why did God institute it? We have to talk about it. You need to know why. And then the third thing we're just going to talk about, two very important, dare I say, oh, volatile issues when it comes to government. We need to be ready to engage those things. So let's begin. Why is it so tough to talk about religion and politics? And I believe it's because when people enter into it, people have different expectations and philosophies of what government should be doing i just want to graph it like this you have idealists you have realists and you have pessimists some of you are idealists when it comes to government and the guy you want to elect or the woman you want to elect. some of you are realists and some of you are pessimists probably a vast majority of you are pessimists but here's what an idealist believes an idealist believes utopia is possible if i elect the right man or the right woman or we put in the right system If we just follow the Constitution, we will have the Millennial Kingdom here on Earth. It's possible. My brother was an idealist. I can remember growing up, I have four older sisters, older brother. We used to have some very, very heated discussions at our dinner table. My dad liked it like that. He would often try to provoke my sisters, you know, saying, hey, you know, men are dominant. Man, they would just, he liked that. So I'm used to debate. But my brother Don one time, he said, you know, Dad, I was thinking about it today. If everybody just obeyed the, the miles per hour on the highways, if they would stop three seconds at a stop sign, if they would stop at the red light, they wouldn't run through a yellow light. They would yield when the yield sign is. They wouldn't pass in a no-passing zone. If they just obeyed the law, nobody would ever get in an accident. I was just thinking about that. If people just did what the law said, nobody would ever, ever get in an accident. We have wouldn't have to worry about it. My dad looked at my brother. I'll never forget it. He goes, die. We're human. That's all he said. Now, what he's meaning is we're living in a fallen world. Do you know communism is an amazing form of government if it wasn't in a fallen world? It's horrible in a fallen world. Probably the worst in a fallen world. So an idealist wants a utopia, but I'm here to say it's an impossibility. You'll never get it the way you want it. So then along comes a realist, and a realist says, absolutely. Do you know what, though? You know what politics is? It's a game. It's a power game. It's all it is. It's one side versus the other. It's the red versus the blue. And you know what? You got to do anything you can to win the game. That's why we have people like In my estimation, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it's not because they're the most ethical or because we really believe they're going to bring us prosperity. It's because they win. They're winners. They rip everybody apart. They throw mud on everybody else. And the one who wins in November is the victor. The game is won. That's the realist. So the realist will be the one that will always say, it doesn't matter, just you better make sure your side wins. Then you have the pessimist. The pessimist... They're cynics. They're like, you know what? Everything's spin. That means everything is a lie. Whoever, you've got to first determine who told the lie, then you'll know why they said the lie. It's all spin to win the advantage, to win the game. So we're all cynics. And there's good reason to be. Let me prove it to you. 1970, tell me who said this. I am not a crook. Who said that? Richard Nixon. All right, 1980 comes along, and who said this? Read my lips. No new no taxes. Who said that? George Sr., Bush, George Sr. Who said this? I, I did not. I, I did not have sex with that woman. Ms. Lewinsky, who said that? That's obvious. William Jefferson Clinton, excellent. Who said this? We're going in there, Iraq, because we're, they have weapons of mass destruction and chemical weapons. And there's some dispute if he's telling the truth. A lot of people think he was lying. That's George Bush Jr. And who said this? You can keep your doctor. You can keep your insurance. Who said that? You see, they're all liars, aren't they? So I'm done. I quit. I'm out of this game. I'm not voting for anybody because they all lie. And again, I'll hide out my camp out. And the world will be really going to you know where in a handbasket not allowed to say that word in church right (laughs) I'm glad you didn't hear Paul's answer did you guys hear Paul's answer where are the elders get Joe and Paul out of here that was hilarious Paul I can't I am (laughs) shocked. oh I missed the comma okay so you're talking about a place no okay Excellent. I was reading as I was doing some research, a guy said, really, the problem, we have to view politics like C.S. Lewis talked about demons. C.S. Lewis said you've got to be very careful how you talk about demons. Some people don't believe they exist at all. That's not a good stance, and some people don't. They think, they think they are everywhere, and both sides are extreme. And so he said it like this. Go ahead and hit that. He said, like demons, politics must be handled with care. It is dangerous to ignore and dismiss them. In other words, it's dangerous to say, I'm just checking out. If you check out, I, my wife and I lived in Russia for a year. They were ruled by an atheistic government for 70 years, and the, the havoc that was reaped on those people, you wouldn't believe it. So politics matters. But on the other end, equally hazardous, is to be solely focused on them. There's some people, that's all they do. That's all they do. You know people who have Fox News on from the moment they get coffee in the morning to the moment they turn out the bed night. Or you know people that, man, you say, you know, they they, they are union all the way. You know those people. They live that. They live that. I want to to go the middle route today. And I, first of all, want to begin by asking you to be salt and light. How do we engage or enter the fray? That may be more important than anything we say. How do we enter into this? When we go on Facebook or when, Don, we go to the corner coffee shop down the road, how do we enter the fray? And I'm going to offer you two things that you've got to listen to. First, you have to be salt. Listen to what this proverb says. A prudent man, that means a good, righteous person. They conceal knowledge. But the heart of a fool proclaims folly. In other words, the wise man thinks before he speaks. He looks before he leaps. The fool, just like a gusher, just says whatever's ever on their mind. <laughs> and they blow everybody away. The truth of the matter is, let me ask you a question: You who believe you're politically astute, do you really know what's going on? Do you really know what's going on in the Pentagon? Do you really know, or do you think you know? A lot of people come up to me and they say, "You know," and they'll say it like this. They'll say it kind of, they'll say it kind of half joking, but I think some of them really believe it. Must be nice to be a pastor. You only work one day a week. <laughs> Except, of course, when you have a funeral or something. But must be nice. Are you serious? Or do you really know what I do during the week? Do we really know? And I was convicted by this honestly as I was praying. Do we really know what President Obama has to deal with every day? Oh, man, I don't want that job. Let's be salt and be careful. Second thing is, let's be light. Look at this next proverb. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinions. He doesn't want to know, he just wants to vent and listen to him talk, himself talk, and talk, and talk, and talk. Light is understanding. We are to be light. We are to have knowledge. So that's what I want to do. I want to begin by giving you some Framework on how to view even a role of government. What is the purpose of it? And I want to start from a, I want to start from a see let's see the forest from the specific trees. And here's, we live, this is God's world. In Mark chapter, Mark chapter 12, verse 17, go to that verse. You've, you'll, you've heard it, but it's very interesting. Jesus confirms that there are different institutions different structures that are set up to handle different things. They were talking about who do we, they are trying to trap Jesus, the Sadducees were, and they're trying to trap him with the tax money or the, the money he gives. Who is this? Whose money is this? And verse 17, talking about paying taxes to Caesar, and Jesus said to them, Mark 12, 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him because he acknowledged the role of Caesar. Because they wanted him to completely deny Caesar. But what he's acknowledging is that the way God rules and runs this world is by setting up different, what I'm going to call different houses, which have, they both have responsibilities and particular tasks to help him order this world and bring blessing to bring redemption and restoration to a fallen world. Here's the three houses. You have individuals, you have the state, and you have the church. He orders things in those three groups and each one has different tasks and responsibilities. Often, often we expect them to behave differently. Sometimes we expect the state to be ha- behave as the individual. Sometimes we We expect the church to behave as the state, but they each have their own tasks, their own parameters, and their their own responsibilities, and we are called to rightly divide the word of truth so we can give accurate and honest representation. When you mix up the responsibility, it gets all crazy. Let me give you an illustration. Individuals, really, individuals are spoken to on a personal basis by God. Matthew 5 through 7 is a very individual call, and it talks about how we are to live in this world, and it's summed up in Matthew 7, verse 12, like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do, you will fulfill all the work of the law and the prophets. That's how individuals are supposed to live. And some of those specific things we're called to do, like forgive somebody who offends you. If somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn your other cheek. And don't render vengeance. Let God take care of that. That's the individual's mandate, not the state's. A lot of pacifists will say, well, see, the state isn't supposed to render vengeance. But then they forget all about Romans 13. We're going to talk about the states in a second. But let's, and really, that's Romans 13. But the church is different. The church is the bride of Christ. As the bride of Christ, we have two main responsibilities. Number one, we are to foster holiness so we will be a bride well presented to his husband when he comes. We are to be pure, separated, different, unique people. The second thing the church is responsible for is the gospel. We have been entrusted with it and we, our main job is to declare it. That's our main job. That's not the state's main job. Did you know the state cannot, the state cannot help you with love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind? The church can, and individuals are called to, but the, church, the state can't mandate that. That's where Muslims bring in Sharia law, or that's where the Holy Roman Empire would have inquisitions because they're trying to go top-down on holiness, and holiness is inside me. The state's not necessarily responsible to mandate that. What's very interesting is how, how do you become a part of this? You're, you're an individual because you just are. There you are but you are born into the state. I want you to go to Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah chapter 29. You're born into the state. You're born again into the church. Jeremiah 29. And I want you to look at verses 4 through 7. This is talking about when... um, Israel was taken out of Israel and they were brought into captivity to Babylon. I don't know if you you remember that, but God was upset with his people. So what he did, he punished them by making them be slaves in a country far away called Babylon. And they were a wicked country. And so this is a letter to the people in exile, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, In Jerusalem was the temple, and Jerusalem was, that was their homeland. But now they're out. Do they just pout and quit and stop living? No. Look at what he says in verse 3, or verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, for they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what he's saying is pray for, pray for Babylon. Yeah, but they're wicked, they're evil, they got Nebuchadnezzar, remember that guy? You throw people, man, it's bad, throw people in an incinerator. Pray for them. Because as God blesses them, you will be blessed. It's sort of the same thing for us. It says in Acts 17, you can hit it, uh, hit the thing. It says, we are born into the state by birth and the church by faith. It says in Acts 17, God places people in different locations at specific times, specific places, so that they will really thrive there and people will seek the Lord. I believe you are to love this country where you're placed. This is where God placed you. We, We almost, we have this, a lot of times we... We say, if we love Jesus, we can't love our country, but pray for its welfare, care about it. Take care of it, love this. That's what patriotism is, a love of your country, but don't idolize it. Don't idolize it as if it's a God, but love it, care for it, because in its welfare will be yours. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for those who lead so they may have peace And so the gospel will be spread, because when they have peace, the gospel will be spread. But the church we are born into by faith, this is a whole different calling. This is our highest loyalty to Christ. He's our king. He's our husband. He's the head of our body. The church is not the state. It's just not. And when you mix that up, it gets dangerous. All right, so how, what's the purpose then of the state? Let's get a little bit more specific. Where are the origins? Where did government begin biblically? And what was the purpose of it? And it's fascinating. As I was doing some research, in the Old Testament, what happened is God set up structures to basically, the first thing I want to show you is the first story, is Cain and Abel. Go to Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, the very first story. And, I, and there's a very interesting phrase in here. Genesis chapter 4. In verse 1 it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That means he had relations with his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So Cain's the oldest. And then verse 2, she bore another son, a brother to Cain, Abel. So you guys know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel because every time Abel offered up sacrifices, God was, God was pleased with it. But Cain was mad. So verse 4 says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering... He had no regard so cain was very angry and his face fell the idea is he's he's de- he's inside himself he's depressed he just consumed his thoughts the lord said to cain why are you angry and why is your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door its desires for you but you must rule over it Cain spoke to his Abel's brother. and When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. Out of his anger, out of his sinfulness, and this is why we can never have a utopia, he killed his brother. The Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? The Lord knew, he was just bringing it to Cain's mind that he knew. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? And here it is, the voice of your brother's blood, is crying to me from the ground. His blood is crying out. That means there needs to be somebody that will make what was done wrong and make it right. There needs to be justice. There needs to be retribution for this wrong. So this is really, in a sense, the first sign for there's a call out of justice. I need somebody out there that will rule on this. Because his blood... Is innocent and it's crying out, somebody stand up, because the blood has been shed. Well, as the and God God was overseeing his people. What you'll see later on in Mosaic Law, God said, Why did you why did you want the law? I was watching over you the whole time. But what happened is they started to become a huge nation. They were held in prisoner by Egypt, and they were crying out. Were justice because they're slaves so God sends Moses and when Moses came he helped deliver the people and then he gave them law and in Deuteronomy listen to what God says about the purpose of the law he says when you give them this law and they obey it then they the nations around you will say wow what great nation has their gods next to them the way Israel does so what God did is he gave them codified set of law and organizational governmental structures to show the world that this is a just order. It brings righteousness and peace and goodness. Some of the subjects that the Mosaic law dealt with are marriage, murder, land ownership. How do we deal with the aliens in our midst? Law. And how do we elect officials and judges? Well then, over time, as their nation grew strong, other nations started to fight and wage war Judges would be raised up. But then all of a sudden, during Samuel's time, they said, We don't, we're tired of these judges, just give us a king. All the other nations have a king, give us a king. And it's really interesting. Go to, go to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 10 through 18. It's right after Ruth. You have Judges Ruth and Samuel. But you have to read this because God, in a way, He gave them a king to fight wars. But he also said, are you sure you want this king? Because with a king also comes corruption. So that's 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 10. Actually, um, look at verse 6 of 1 Samuel 8. they wanted a king and it says it displeased Samuel and they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel hey obey the voice of the people they have rejected you they've rejected me as their king according to all the deeds they've done verse 9 obey their voice but warn them show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them so you have verse 10 so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king he said These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, meaning his army, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will, there it is, cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you. And so in a sense, he goes, all right, I'm going to give you a king. He's going to wage war, but he's also going to be, there's corruption in the heart of man. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this is the origin of government. There needed to be justice for the blood that was shed. There needs to be rule to help organize a nation. And there's a reality of war. But with war comes its consequences. So now, let's go back to Romans 13 and watch how All three of these are seen in Romans 13. Okay, so verse 2, we can begin there in Romans 13. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. But to bad, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is a servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what he's saying is, first of all, you have here this whole idea of an avenger. That's the idea blood's been shed, and there has to be somebody that will come and fight. That's what the government's responsible for, to avenge wickedness. Not to turn the other cheek, but to avenge it, to give answers for it. That's where justice comes in. Justice means fairness. I'm not going to get into all of the ramifications of justice, but just there needs to be somebody that says this blood is crying out. I'm, wait till we really see how much blood and how much has gone... Corruption has caused us to blind our eyes to just the pain that's in this world. Jesus is going to be the just and exact judge. Second thing he says is in the middle of verse 3. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good. You will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. Government is for our good. It's a servant to assist us and bless us, and protect us. It's a necessary institution. And then you also have this whole idea of the sword. Verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And the sword is the idea of, can also be the site of justice, but also the sword represents there is a time for war. I won't get into, there's a lot of things that good Christian thinkers have thought about that talks about the, the righteous will cause the city, if he's a ruler, the righteous will cause the city to flourish. But if you put a fool in lead, it will cause sorrow for a city. That's Proverbs 29.2. Deuteronomy 7 through 20 gives us rules for what's called just war theory. Sometimes there is a way to wage a war. You don't wage a war to gain from other people, but there's a way to wage a war where it's just. If you are interested, if you're a pacifist, read up on just war theory. It's very, it's very important that you know it. Just by saying we must not fight isn't honest. It's not seeing the world as it is. The world's wicked. It just is. So you can see that's the purpose of it. So the question then, in, in those three houses, go to the next slide, how are we to respond? How is the individual to respond to the state and how the church respond to the state? They have different rules. The individual is to respect the authorities, to honestly respect them. At the end of Romans, it says pay your taxes. Show honor to people in noble positions. Have you ever faced a judge? When you're wrong, it's kind of scary. But they are given kind of a, I I like the the idea of gravitas. They have a mantle of authority. We are to respect that and honor that. We are to pray for the state. But then you also have the church. The church doesn't just give the state carte blanche to do what it wants. The the church's objective is to set limitations on the state's corruption. Look at Acts chapter 5. So they are to restrain the the government from just taking over everything, Acts chapter 5. This is when uh, Peter was preaching the gospel and the Sanhedrin took him and they're going to, Tell them and tell them, you cannot keep teaching. So verse 27 of Acts 5. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach this, not to teach in this name. Because Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. Stop that. You're not allowed to. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must. We don't give the state carte blanche to do whatever they want. We have to stand up and say, God wouldn't have this. This is wrong. Stop. So those are the purposes. I I am telling you, do you know how much stuff is written on this? It's unbelievable. You, you, have, you have a good idea. So I'm just giving you parameters of how to think instead of having these knee-jerk reactions. A lot of times, politics is nothing but logical fallacies. A logical fallacy is saying this. As I stand up and I'm a leader, if I say... My way is right and I'm just. And my, though, if you disagree with me, you're going to be on the side with these wicked people over here. That's a straw man argument. Most of politics is that these days. Don't fall for that. We fall for slogans. We are the people for education and a green earth. They are for polluted waters and a destroyed earth. No, come on. So we have to then engage. And there's two areas we have to be really. These are tough areas to engage. But the first one, and this is more towards our side, we've got to have compassion for the poor. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. Go ahead and hit that. Deuteronomy says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your town, within your land, that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart against your poor brother. Don't harden your heart against the poor. Don't do it. They are made in the image of God. However, as we engage this subject, because it gets very, very tricky, there are two questions that must be asked and discussed. The first is this. Go ahead. What are the causes of poverty? What breeds it? And I'm telling you, there's, and this is a big one. My brother-in-law, he works in the urban transformation ministries and there's guys that have worked through this, but we can't all lump them as just economic inequality, that it's because some people have money and some don't. There's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons. Like, go ahead and hit that thing. Is poverty the result of circumstances? A, a baby is born in a bad area. Don't you have compassion on a baby? We should. Is it uh, the result of choice that this person just doesn't want to? Are we affording them the opportunities to do that? But we can't compel somebody to do something. Or is it soul corrosion? I mean, there's, there's questions we have to ask in this. It's not just because you have some people are rich and some people are poor. Those aren't the, that's simplistic. The second question we have to ask is who's responsible to take care of them? Go ahead and hit it. Has the church abdicated responsibility because they don't want to get involved? I think somewhat some people have. And so the government has taken over where we used to be involved. But this is a tough one. In our church, we, have, we, we try to go on small scale. We have a benevolent fund to help just people with immediate needs like gas and electricity do you have some grocery money? We do that on a local level. We work with Love Incorporated on a bigger level, which get, they get financial assistance, but also they get trained on how to handle their money. And really this class Kim, that Kim and Bill are doing, it's a great class. It helps us within our church how to handle the money. And in community-wide, there's a lot of organizations that help on a big scale, but the problem is we can't just throw money at somebody. If you want to read a very interesting book, read the book called Toxic Charity, and how how they did this research over the 10 poorest countries in Africa, and they assessed how much assistance did they get. And the poorest countries in Africa were given the most assistance. And they're like, how could that be? Because what has happened, generationally, are, are, are levels of dependence, where a guy comes in on an emergency, gives them money. Next year, they come in, and they give them the same amount of money. The third year, they're just expecting them to come in. And so people quit, and their heads drop, and their souls shrink. And so there's businesses that are now trying to do what are called micro-businesses, where they give loans to give people, I, I, I can do this, I can work. Is in this toxic charity, this one guy talked about how we do. they do mission trips. Youth groups do mission trips, and they go to Haiti. And he says, really, you know what they are? Those are a lot of these mission trips are just, I call them church vacations because we'll send in kids to do work that really we we have stolen work from people in the area and they don't do the job as good as they do it. And then they go, go home thinking, look at all that we've done when really what you've done is you've created dependence. It's a long story, but if you want to read something very interesting, all I'm saying is money isn't necessarily... The answer, I heard one person say, money is like water. If I pour water on the grass, it, does, it causes more grass to grow up. In the same way, the more money I put in some area, often doesn't fix the problem, it exacerbates it. All I'm saying is read up on it, think through it. And we should have compassion for the poor. We really should. And if you know somebody who's your neighbor and they need help, help them. That's where it begins. Second thing is here's some things to think through. And I just, these are my final thoughts. And I am not going to tell you who to vote for. I won't. But the first one's this. The primary message of the church is that Christ is our king and he is salvation. Not a party, not a form of government, but him. In him alone. That is often why, in a sense, Jared and I wrestle with stuff like Fourth of July. What do we do? Is salvation in our country? No, but we should honor our country. Salvation's in the single hands of one person, Christ, and he's the one we declare because he's the only one that died. Second thing, the individual must play his or her part as a citizen and belong to any party as he decides. That's between you and Christ. And you have to say, what do they really support? If I vote, let's talking to Don, is that, do I vote just for my paycheck or do I vote because I want there to be goodness in this land? And that's between you and Christ. Read Romans 14 you're going to answer to Christ on the things you do. But here's a really, this third one is very important. We must be careful that our denunciations do not shut the door on the gospel. Sin is our enemy, not a party or an ideology. I often see pastors that, they often just have tirades against either Islam or some political party's decision, and they often have people in the congregation who agree with them. And in their tirade, what they are doing is they aren't making Jesus more approachable and interesting. They're making him rigid. And we have to be very, very, very careful with that. That's why often people say, you need to hammer hard on this singular issue. You need to go up there, pastor, and just denounce those people. And I, I can't, because that's not why I'm here. If I was a politician, I'd, I'd argue some of those things. But I am here for one reason. I want you to see that there's an answer for your sin. I like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. The church is to be concerned with sin in all of its manifestations. And sin can be as terrible on a capitalist as in a communist. It can be as terrible on a rich man as it is in a poor man. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to engage a culture and think. Don't bluster. Get some books, like Toxic Charity. Read up. Ask yourself, why do I vote? And then the final thing is, and then vote. We need your vote. Don't be one of the 40%. Don't hide away and hope everything will be fine without you, because it won't. It won't. It just won't. And hopefully, if you give good arguments, people will start listening to you. I think one of the reasons why people don't like Christians is we are just prone to logical fallacy as the next guy. So let's pray. Lord, we really, really need your help in this area. And and in a way, I feel like I haven't done anything this morning of consequence or really given specific direction but one thing is clear you've asked us to be thinking engaging people help us first of all promote Jesus as bright and as loudly as we can help us as a church to be holy and help us to be messengers and proclaimers of the gospel we need that we need your help with that secondly God help us as we enter into the fray and we're going to help us to be reasoned help us to be kind help us god not to bluster but help us father to to love people and then but voice our opinion and do it well and the third thing god is as we go to um as we go and vote for our candidate or as we get involved in our local community, God, help us to do it because we want to see this country flourish so the gospel will be flourishing. We pray for our leaders. I pray for the president. I pray that God, you'd give him wisdom. I pray you give him a heart that's sensitive to godly instruction. I pray for our governor. I pray the same for him. I pray, God, for our congressmen. and I pray for our Senate. I pray for the churches in our area that the people would be involved and care. And then lastly, I just pray for us that, God, I pray when you bring poor people our way, help us not to be hard and callous. Help us to care. We pray this in your name.